I think it was mentioned earlier in the service, I was convalescing in my office, uh, that uh, this is the 300th anniversary of the song Joy to the World. You know, there aren't very many songs that last for three centuries, but Joy to the World is, is one of them. Written by Isaac Watts, you know, you think about all of the terrible things that have happened not, not, I mean, the last 300 years, just take the last 100 years, terrible things that have happened, and yet, all over the world, this month, and especially today, tomorrow, and Tuesday, people will be singing and listening to, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. We go to the store, it plays over our heads, we turn the radio on in the car, it's playing, maybe in your home, it's playing. An amazing uh, run for that song. <clears throat> Here's to another 300 years. Our church has been in a series on the book of Romans, as many of you know. And just last Sunday, we wrapped up our, our, uh, our, our teaching through chapter 11 with a kind of summary statement. Paul gets to the end of chapter 11. He looks back on all that he's written about the doctrine of the gospel, this wonderful deep dive on how God makes sinners righteous. And he gets to the end, and he, he looks back on the, on the majesty of all of it, and he, he says this, For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And the hymn there is God, all things from him, through him, and to him. Meaning that God is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. Indeed, he is the goal and the end game for all things and all people and all history. So you have this repetition, all, 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 what's not included in all, nothing. And that little verse unveils God's overarching purpose in all that he does. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And today and at our Christmas Eve services, we're continuing that theme of glory or gloria, glory in the manger today. But as we do that, let's make sure we understand what glory is. We use that word a lot, throw it out often. What, what is glory and what does the Bible teach about it? Very quickly, there are two ways the Bible talks about glory. The most prominent is glory as the expression of the infinite worth of God. Like if I said, hey, Pick a word that describes how valuable and worthy God is. What would you come up with? Well, the Bible comes up with glory. Glory. To him be the glory is to say, to God be all the praise. To God be all the acclaim. To God be all of the honor. He alone is worthy of all the glory. Think about how somebody typically um, accepts uh, a, a, an Academy Award. They, they get up and they say, I'd like to thank all of the little people who've allowed me to get here. I'd like to thank my, you know, my producer. I'd like to thank my, the director. I'd like to thank my writers. I'd like to thank my family, you know, and, and they go on. And what are they saying in that? They're, they're basically saying that, yes, I'm getting the glory here, but it's, there's been a lot of people that have contributed to me getting the glory. Versus somebody who gets a, a posthumous medal of honor award at the White House where, you know, the, the president typically pins it on the man's wife. And it's a very somber moment where everybody recognizes that for this soldier, 
the worth and the value and the glory of his country was worth him giving his entire life. And it creates this sort of weightiness over the sacrifice and the statement that how valuable the country is uh, to the Medal of Honor winner. And God's glory is more like the second. It's, it's that overarching weight and worth and value that even God himself uh, places before him as a motive for why he does what he does. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. God's glory as the worth and the weight and the value, which is infinite uh, in God. The second way that the Bible talks about God's glory is this glory light. The visible expression of the infinite worth of God. The display, the light show. That oftentimes, when God's presence shows up, uh, is on display. So, the way I think this works is much like if the sun. If we were to say, how valuable is the sun? Well, the sun's very valuable to us. If there was no sun, we all would freeze to death. We, uh, you know, no crops would grow. Uh, there would be no photosynthesis. There'd be no oxygen. We all die very quickly if there is no sun. Well, how does the sun show how valuable it is? Well, it emanates with sun rays. It emanates with these little pieces, these little fragments. They argue whether light is... Uh, physical or just energy, and I don't know the answer to that, but the point being that it just, it just displays from the sun. And God has a, a kind of glory light that emanates from him. Every description in the Bible of people who have the privilege of seeing God in his glory or in Jesus on earth when he let it out, like the transfiguration, there is this like awe at the light show that is the glory of God. It is described as brilliant, white, dazzling. And for human beings, it is terrifying. None of us, if we knew what it was, would probably naturally say, I wanna see the glory, the glory of God. No, we'd be on our faces shaking in fear. Now, we have in the Christmas narrative both examples of the glory of God, both the worth of the glory of God and the glory light of the glory of God. And since this is our theme, glory in the manger, you listen for both of those. We're in Luke chapter 2. There's really only two narratives that we have of the birth of Jesus, Matthew and Luke. John gives a theological explanation, which is actually our text for Christmas Eve, and uh, Mark just ignores it entirely. So, our, our choices are limited. Luke is one of them. Luke chapter 2. Here is what Luke writes. I'm beginning in verse 1. These are very familiar words if you've been a Christian very long. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. 
Now, our focus today is on the angels, the shepherd, and Jesus in the manger, but this sets the stage, and actually, there is something about glory even in this uh, backstory, because we see in this the difference between the glory of God and the glory of man. Why did Caesar decide that he wanted all of these people to go to their original hometown? Well, he wanted to count them, and he wanted to tax them. Government still does that, have you noticed? Uh, And so Caesar here is in an attempt to uh, expand his own glory, to expand his own kingdom. And what we note in this, and this is one of the great ironies in Jesus' birth, is that it is Caesar's census and self-worship which creates the context for a Bethlehem birth and a prophetic fulfillment and Jesus' identity as born in a manger. If he had been born in Nazareth, they would not have laid him in a manger. He wouldn't fulfill Micah's prophecy of being born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And we just see in this, and and I hope that you can see in this, how God uses government and politicians and political theater to fulfill his purposes. Can he do that? He certainly did it here, which I think is a good thing to keep in mind, given the political drama of the days that we live in. All for him includes flawed government as well. So now we get into the glory. Verse eight, glory in the night. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Are you listening? And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And now we're into the famous part of this story, right? We have these famous but anonymous angels and famous but anonymous shepherds. We're not told if this angel that appeared, one first appeared in the sky, is whether that was Gabriel. It might have been. Gabriel's already prominent in Luke. Uh, uh, He doesn't give his name. We don't know. And then we have the famous shepherds. Again, we don't know their names. These are the watchers of sheep outside of Bethlehem, which happens to be the hometown of the most famous shepherd who's ever lived, David. Bethlehem forever connected with David and the generational son of David, Jesus. Now, our focus today is on uh, the, the, the glory that we see in this story, not profiling these characters. So let's keep going here. So here's the story. It's nighttime. The shepherds are there. They're doing what shepherds do at night. You know what shepherds back then, I've done careful research. You know what shepherds did in the evenings when it got dark after a long day of watching sheep? You know what they did? They snoozed and they slept. Doesn't take careful research to know that, does it? But that's what they did. They snoozed and they slept. And so you have some snoozing and sleeping shepherds who are just, you know, this is another night in their life. When all of a sudden, the supernatural explodes in the night sky and an angel appears. Now, note something with me. 
It says, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Who's the them? You might think, as I have often thought, and actually this is a little bit of a discovery for me this week in my mind as I've read this, I've always thought, you know, that the angel appeared in the sky filled with the glory of God. But that's actually not what it says. The glory of the Lord, it doesn't say it shone around the angel. Who did it shine around? The shepherds. You ever been laying in bed and somebody comes to wake you up and they flip the lights on? You're like, ooh, you know. I actually, I thought about doing something like that just to give you a sense of it, but uh, I, I chose not to, lest some of the elderly, uh, I don't know what would happen to them, but <laughs> we love them so much, we don't want to unsettle them. But So we're not going to do that, but you can imagine with me a dark sky, and this is not in the day, by the way, where in Bethlehem you had all of these, you know, street lights and, uh, you know, the, the, the Best Buy sign, you know, and, and the, you know, you didn't, it was just dark. You ever been like camping out where, and these people camped every day of their life. They never saw light at night. So this is even more shocking to them when all of a sudden in the night sky, they are enveloped with the light of the glory of God. Shocking to say the least. In fact, the text accurately describes it. They were terrified. I grew up in the King James. I can't help but noting it says they were sore afraid. Just like we all would be sore afraid if suddenly the glory of God surrounded us. And even more shocking than the glory light is the glorious news. Here's what the angel says. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. What a glorious message God delivered to mankind. And we see here the first missionary of the gospel is an angel. And his very first congregation is a group of sheep and shepherds. Now we're not told what the sheep thought about the message. But we do know what the shepherds thought about the message. They say to themselves, what has happened here? And what should we do? They're amazed at this message. And note now, the, the angels aren't done. It says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, and here's this word again, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So now we move from glory light to glory in this song, a song of adoration. Note that it doesn't tell us how many angels there were. The Greek word is actually, it's the root of the word plethora that we get in the English, plethora. A large multitude, the NIV translates it a great company. So imagine with me, if one angel is shocking enough, the glory of God surrounding you on a night like this, imagine a sky filled with angels that not only added to the sound and the light display, but they actually now are also praising God, okay? They praised God. How did they do it? Now, we assume that they sang it. But actually, the Greek word doesn't mean, it, it can mean sing. 
It can mean speak or perhaps chant. Dare I say it? Rap? I mean, we don't know exactly the melodic form that their message came out in. But we do know the message. Glory to God in the highest. Now, are they saying more light to God in the highest? No, it's not that use of glory. It's, it's the worth of God. May, may God be praised. May God be seen as infinitely worthy for what he has done, this amazing baby that has been born. Now, notice that they are praising God in the highest. And that is referencing the loftiest place, the highest place of honor. Now, what's the issue here? Glory to God in the highest place. Who are they actually praising with this? Should we not clarify it to say, glory to God the Father in the highest place? And why do I say that? Because when they're saying, sharing this message, it is only God the Father who is in the highest place. God the Son is in the lowest place. In fact, if they were wanting to praise the second person of the Trinity, they would say, glory to God in the lowest place. Now, we'll get to that in a moment. But no, they're saying glory to God in the highest place. Glory to God the Father in the marvel of what he has done. So the angels praise God the Father in the highest. Who is charged with praising God in the lowest? It's not the angels. It is these shepherds. Okay? The people who, socially speaking, share Jesus' present social status. They are low, these shepherds. Let's talk about the shepherds a moment. You've heard this, you know, all this talk about the shepherds and... We sort of envision them as being highly noble people of great distinction because of, you know, uh, who they were. Actually, in society at that time, the, the shepherds were considered like lowlifes. They were, they were uh, uh, famous for the, the five-finger discount, if you know what that means. These are the kind of people, if you invited them to your house, you hide the silverware and count it carefully after dishes are put in the sink. Because they just had that reputation of seeing, you know, whatever is, is uh, thine is mine. And uh, because of that, and because they worked on Sabbath, they also couldn't go to the, the temple, which also in that society made them very suspect. The net result of all of this is that these shepherds, like all the other shepherds, were at the bottom rung of society, you know, if God was trying to create an impressive guest list to the party for his son, he never would invite the shepherds. Who would he invite? Well, you know, you would, in that society, you would, you would want a priest to be there, you know. You'd want a Levite to be there. And, of course, you would want a senior pastor to be there. It's not a party if the senior pastor isn't invited. Okay, again, you don't invite... You don't invite shepherds. You don't invite the people that when they walk in, everyone's like, oh, got to go. Got to put the kids down. That was the shepherds. People didn't want to hang around with them. So why did God invite shepherds to the party? 
We don't actually know. Perhaps as a tip of the hat to David, the shepherd. You know, we, Jesus fulfills Psalm 23. He is the good shepherd. And so shepherds, in a way, are invited to meet the shepherd. Possibly some, you know, tie in there. But most likely, this is the reason. Let's just say that rather than inviting the shepherds to the party, uh, God had decided to invite the rich and the famous to the party. Maybe uh, some of the royalty to the party. Maybe some of the movers and shakers uh, to the party. Wouldn't normal people like us wonder if Jesus came for common folk? Couldn't we wonder if actually Jesus came for Sinners, if it was the high, the mighty, and the righteous that were invited to the birth party. So inviting the people at the bottom of the ladder assures us, no matter where we are on the ladder, that Jesus came for us too. And what better people to invite to communicate for generations who Jesus really came for than to invite the shepherds. So after the shepherds have this incredible moment, they hear the incredible message, they see the incredible light, they have a little holy huddle, and they say, what are we going to do now? And they say, well, of course, we're going to go to Bethlehem. Let's go check out this thing that the angels told us. And so off they go, and as they go, a star appears and lead them to the place where Jesus was laying in a manger. Did I get that right? No, I did not get that right. There's no star helping the shepherds. A little quiz there for you. There's no star helping the shepherds. That was something for the wise men, okay? How did the shepherds find Jesus? Well, they did what we do a lot when you go into a town you don't know anybody. You ask around. And so they went into rushing into Bethlehem and they're like, hey, has anybody seen a pregnant woman around here? And they're like, you know, there's lots of pregnant women around here. Okay, anybody see a pregnant woman somewhere around like a stable where there might be a manger? And right now they're saying, what? You know, yeah, there's a baby somewhere in Bethlehem lying in a manger. And they're like, you shepherds are crazy. But that was the sign, wasn't it? You shall find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, and lying in a manger. And why is that a great sign that this actually is the one, this is the baby? Because nobody put babies in, in mangers. And we don't to this day put babies in feeding troughs. So if you find a baby in a feeding trough, ah, that's the one. That is the sign. Not the star, but the baby in the manger. By the way, the wise men... And, and many of you know this is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. The wise men, we, we include them in the story, but they uh, most likely didn't show up for quite some time. Uh, maybe up to two years if you base that on Herod killing all the babies two years and younger, a little bit later in the story. Uh, so uh, the wise men and the star and all of that, that's maybe a couple years later. I would advise you to remove them from your nativity sets or perhaps buy an older looking Jesus if you keep them in there. <laughs> okay, now where do we see glory with the shepherds? Verse 17. And when they saw it, 
they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds, here we go, returned, glorifying, okay? Were they trying to create light, glory light? No, that's not that kind of glory. Glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And so we find with the shepherds, after they go to Bethlehem, find Jesus and Mary and Joseph, they emulate, essentially, the angels who already kind of knew what was going on, and they emulate it how? With overflowing glory and praise. Now, we don't know how they did it. They did it in a sort of shepherd sort of way. They maybe were singing. They maybe were praying. They were dancing. They were crying. They were some combination of all of that. I no idea, but whatever it was, they were rejoicing. I mean, you might ask the question, how would you react if you met Jesus? And Christian, isn't that, isn't that kind of what you've done? If you are a Christian, haven't you met Jesus? And what is the appropriate response to meeting the incarnate Son of God? Christian, haven't you at some point kind of had your own manger moment where suddenly with eyes of faith you realize that Jesus is exactly who the angel said that he is? A savior who is Christ the Lord? Is that not the gospel? So, I, I mean, to realize, if you get, hey, Pastor Steve, what's the verse that we you know, support celebrating Christmas every year? Did you know there is no mandate to celebrate Christmas. That sounds like, you know, blasphemy uh, somehow. But we're not told to celebrate Jesus' birth. Now we do, and rightly so. But one of the blessings of Christmas is that it takes Christians back to that manger, and in seeing that manger moment with the shepherds and Jesus, it reminds us of our own manger moment. That time in my life when I came to see and realize that this baby is more than a baby. This baby, fully human, is also simultaneously fully God, who grew up and died for my sins and is now at the right hand of God. What should we do at Christmas time? Let's take our cues from the shepherds glorify and praise God for all we have heard and seen. Amen, Christians? Okay. So, we have glory with the angels and their announcement. We have glory with the shepherds. But the real focus of all of this is who's in that crib? Who's in that manger? I remember when we had our, our uh, girls that no matter where you go, what store you go, what you know, church gathering, what family gathering, whatever, when you have a baby, the baby like sucks all the attention, doesn't it? Everyone just like, zoop, focuses in on the baby. And that's a good discipline, I think, at Christmas, is to focus on the baby. Because there's so many other things that we can focus on, think about, be concerned about, be fretting about, be running around 15 different directions about. Focus on the baby. That's who this is all about. Here's verse 16. 
the shepherds. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. You will search the scriptures in vain to find out really anything more about this baby. We are not told the normal things. We don't know what his height was. We don't know what his weight was. We don't know what you know, color hair and eyes. We know that Mary and Joseph are there, and that's, of course, to be expected. Parents of, of, of newborns are very attentive, especially the firstborn. By the fourth, it's like, okay, whatever. But the first one, this is their first child. They're very attentive. Other than that, all we're told about is his crib, which it says here is a manger. Now, as you may know, a manger, which sounds sort of sentimental and religious to us now, was at that time nothing more than the feeding trough for the animals. Not exactly the most hygienically clean spot for a baby, do you think? I mean, think about this, this feed. It's not like they you know, went to Home Depot and bought one a year. You know, this is likely a manger, a feeding trough that has been used year after year after year. When we go to the orchard or we go to a petting zoo, you know, the girls are always like, we want to feed the goats, you know, and so, okay, fine, and you buy them feed and, and you let them, you know, feed the goats, and we watch them very carefully, and about a half a second after they're done, we're like bathing them in antibacterial soap, <laughs> and we use words like icky, <laughs> icky. licking tongues of goats and cows. And there in that icky spot lay the creator of the universe, the Lord of glory. In that icky place, he was the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In that icky place, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Did the shepherds begin to realize who was laying in that manger? And obviously the answer is no. Any more than we, in a sense, don't begin to realize the glory that is Jesus. But the little they did understand elicits from them praise and glory to God, which 2,000 years later we're still talking about it. And friends, isn't this the wonder, the, the marvel of Christmas? That one so glorious, one so infinitely worthy and infinitely valuable and infinitely powerful, I mean, the eternal God lies in human flesh and in all of all places on earth 
in a goat feeding manger. And that blows our minds. It blows our minds. We can't grasp such glory in a normal human baby. And this has been a struggle for a very long time for us. Like, we're, we're, we, we continue to be uncomfortable with the incarnation. Like, it's just, how can all of that be in a little baby? And for years, what artists would do is they would paint a halo. Maybe you've seen this in paintings. Paint a halo over Jesus. And they would do it in his adulthood. They would do it in his, in his birth. I looked it up a little bit and actually... Artists would do that before Jesus was born. They were doing that with the pantheon of Roman gods. When they would paint them, they would put a little halo over to indicate this person is really, really special. And then they incorporated that when Jesus uh, was, was born in art. They would put a, a halo over him. And yet, what do we see here in the text? That at his birth, the only glory was out in the fields, when the angels appear, do you know what Jesus looked like in that manger? Here's the shock. He looked like a normal baby. Despite what the song says, he cried. That's not blasphemy. Jesus cried. I'll take it another step. He needed a diaper. Do you want to know how human that baby was? He needed a diaper. He was as normal as normal could be and simultaneously upholding the galaxies by the power that has been his for all eternity. This child, this Messiah, I think in many ways we're more comfortable with the adult Jesus being the infinite God, because we see him standing at Lazarus's tomb and saying, come forth, and standing in front of the, 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 the storm and saying, peace be still. We sort of like, okay, he's, he's an adult, he's a man. He was all that when he was a baby. He was a baby. And this is the true glory in the manger. It's not a light show, because there was no glory light in the manger. It's not a song because they were singing or chanting or rapping or whatever they were doing out in the fields. It's not angels, because there's no angels that show up at the manger scene. It's not the shepherds. The glory in the manger is who he was and is. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. The one who deserved glory in the highest has now taken the position of the lowest. I read an article about this this week. It's just fascinating. The angels, you know, they say glory to God in the highest. When we understand Christmas, we sing glory to God in the, in the lowest. And here's the thing, friends. In that low place, in that place of humility, he gives hope to all humanity that if he would go to the lowest place and lay his precious head on the hay of horses, then none of us need to question if Jesus came for me. No light, no angels, no song, no trumpets, no throne, 
no sea of glass, no seraphim chanting, holy, 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 none of the accoutrements to Jesus' true identity, but there was divine glory in that manger, cloaked in a baby, hidden from human eyes, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Friend, I wonder if you can, do you see the glory in the manger? Do you see the glory in the baby? Do you Do you see what this is all about? Can you believe in his mission to understand why he came? Can you see in even his his birth and the words of the angels, the, 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 the foreshadowing of why he came in the first place, which was not just to be incarnate, but to die in atoning death for our sins and an atoning death for your sins. Can, you, can your heart get to that place? Last Sunday, after first service in the commons, I had this couple came up to me, and I happen to know a little bit about this couple. The wife been praying for her husband, I'm not sure how many years, 20 years, praying for her husband's salvation. I know we have many women in our church. Every time you blow out the candles, that's the prayer, that's the thing you're, you're, you're hoping for. They came up to me, and uh, the wife said, he has something he wants to tell you. And uh, he said, this week I became a Christian. And he's likely somewhere in this service right now. And you know what I said to him? I said, your first Christmas as a Christian. What a special thing. Your first Christmas to look beyond all the stuff and all the gala and all the festivities. Your first Christmas to peer into the manger. And by faith, to look into the eyes of that baby, and in the face of Jesus, to see the very face of God. What an incredible privilege. What a joyous Christmas. Brother, if you're here, I hope it's an awesome one for you. But that's really the desire for all of us, isn't it? To get to, like, like, a, like a child, to get over to that, that manger and to peer over the manger at the baby. And to not just see a baby or to see human flesh but to see God, and through that to see the gospel, and through God and the gospel to see glory. Take our cues from the first Christmas. The angels, what did they do? Adoration. The shepherds, what did they do? Amazement. Mary, what did she do? She treasured these things. Adoration, amazement, and a sense of wonder and glory that treasures Jesus' birth as true glory in the manger. Merry Christmas.